We're in chapter 7 in our ongoing study of uh, Romans. Um, we got into this paragraph, but I want to start again with verse 7. Um, just to remind you of a couple of things that Paul is doing here. First of all, as I said, I think last week and even the week before, Romans chapter 6 begins the transition in the book of Romans from Paul dealing with the doctrine of justification by faith to the doctrine of sanctification. And chapter 6 introduces that, as we'll talk in just a minute in review, by reminding us of our position in Christ, which results from justification. And in chapter 6, 1 through 14, we are dead to sin. We, are, we have died to sin because our identification with the, is with Jesus. In his death, burial, and resurrection, the Father sees us because we put our faith in Christ. And, and because, that is, because that is true, that is the fact of how God the Father looks at us. Secondly, this is the second half of chapter 6 that concludes the end of the chapter, verse 23, we are slaves to Jesus. We have a new master. Before we put our faith in Christ, we are enslaved to sin. We could not not sin, pardon the double negative there. But once we put our faith in Christ, we are now regarded as we have a new master, a new Lord. It's our Savior. Now, chapter 7 introduces a third key concept. Uh, uh, I even use a stronger word. A third key reality, a uh, third key truth. We are dead to the law. And he dealt with that in verses 1 through 7 as, as, we laid that, as he lays that out. But then he asks this important question, which is where I want to start again this morning. We did get into this a little bit last week, but start there. What then shall we say, that the law is sin? That's a question. And what he has been saying about the previous, in the previous paragraph, uh, verses 1 through 6 of chapter 7, would lead one to conclude that, that the law is what causes us to sin. Because I've said before, he says this a lot in these chapters, by no means, meganoita, the strongest way you can say no in, in the New Testament. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. So what does that mean? Because when you first, you first read that, a cursory reading of it, you think, well, what do you mean before Paul read the law, he wasn't a sinner? That's not what he means by that. What he's saying to us is God's revelation in the law, the moral law of God, specifically itemizes, identifies, categorizes, specifies what sin is. And so the more revelation we have about the character of God and what the nature of sin is, the more accountable we are. Let's put it another way. The, the greater the depths of our rebellion. Now, we talked about this before. If you go back, go way back to the Garden of Eden, how many commandments did Adam and Eve have? One. That's all. There were no other commandments that they were obligated to. Once they violate that commandment and are in rebellion against God and sin enters the human race and so on, does that mean from Adam until... Moses in 1446 B.C. when the law was given, nobody lied. Nobody committed murder. Well, Cain, you remember, murdered Abel. Uh, nobody committed adultery. Nobody stole. All of those things that are itemized in the law, no. They were part of the human condition because sin 
enters the human race through Adam, and every human being that's born inherits the guilt of Adam and the corruption, the nature of Adam. So human sin. What the law does is it specifies, itemizes, characterizes the nature of human rebellion against God. And the more revelation we have, the greater our accountability. Now, we know that everyone sinned from Adam until Moses because they all died. <laughs> that Remember, that's the penalty of sin. Now, I'm reminding you of all of these things because that's the background when Paul says, for I would not have known sin. The law revealed what sin is. The law revealed the depths of our rebellion. And that's a dangerous bit of knowledge to have. Because the more knowledge we have of the specific nature of our rebellion, the greater the accountability is. But Paul doesn't stop there. In, verse, in the next verse, he uses an illustration from his own life. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Now, he's using that as an example, and it's really interesting that he chooses that example because of all the commandments in the Ten Commandments, the Tenth Commandment is the most difficult one. What I mean by that is because you shall not covet is an inward motivation, an inward attitude, an inward dynamic in our lives. If, you know, if Bill is coveting something that Ed has, I don't know that. I can't see that. But that covetousness may lead him to steal. But the Bible is saying, the law is saying, covetousness is a sin. To covet something. Okay, who knows and sees and observes you coveting? You know it, and God knows it, but nobody else does. Now, if you act on that, we would see it. So Paul is saying what the law revealed was the depths of my rebellion against God. It even relates to coveting. If I covet, it's an example, an illustration of the depths of my rebellion against God. It extends to my attitudes, my motivations, the inner things in my heart that no one else sees but God and me. That's really important. Because this is what Jesus kept saying to the Pharisees. You guys, follow the law. You shall not commit murder. But I say unto you, if you have, if you have anger in your heart towards your brother, you're guilty. Who sees anger in your heart? Nobody but you and God. So what, this, is what, this is what Paul is trying to get at. The seriousness of this is revealed through the law. But then he goes on, and it's really fascinating what he does here. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I, I don't know if that's a, a, a great illustration, a, a great translation. I mean, sin, sin lies dead. A better way to understand that, that Greek term is, Sin lies latent. If I use the word latent, you know what I mean? It's there. It's, it's clearly there, but it's not being acted upon. But as, as the 
as the law reveals the nature of covetousness, it begins to reveal something. The depth of my rebellion is the more information I have, the more I understand what God's moral character is and that God does not want me to do this, the more I am prone to actually do it. Because sin delights in breaking rules. And we, we talked a little bit about that last week when we were in the previous paragraph. And I used my children as an example, but you all would say the same thing. You tell your children, don't touch the hot stove. And you go out of the room, the tendency will be they're going to go touch the hot stove. And I'm using that as because this is what Paul is saying. Sin the depths of sin is so significant and so pervasive that when greater moral rules are laid out, we as humans have the tendency to say, okay, how far can I go without breaking this? How close can I get? Without? And if I cross that line that God has said, you know, it's kind of fun breaking rules. I don't remember. I don't know if you remember this because I can't even tell you when it was, but a number of years ago, Burger King, had a had an advertisement which they talked about to buy a hamburger, we break the rules. And I always watched that and I thought, what does that have to do with buying a hamburger? So if you could if you figured out that commercial, explain it to me someday. But they used that and I when I when I would see that on TV, I would always think that is a perfect illustration of the human condition. A rule is laid down, we delight to break the rule. As a matter of fact, we think a rule is an imposition of my freedom and liberty. Best example of that for us adults, I know it doesn't apply to anybody in this class, but would be speed limits. I, I know that's not something that's an issue with you. But you have a speed limit. It's on a sign. You know what your, you know what your duty and obligation is, but I don't feel like observing that today. And that's an imposition of my freedom. So I'm going to speed. Someday you're going to get caught, and you're going to have to pay the penalty. Perhaps you get caught 30 times. Who did? Bill. <laughs> I knew you were a sinner, but I didn't think you were that. No. In the lifetime. I'm just kidding. Okay, I'm just kidding. Because he was a lot over a lifetime. <laughs> <laughs> it, it might not be 30. I couldn't count. <laughs> but our society encourages covetousness, and you can feel it. It does. Go get a second job. I mean, you know, you you think it's our kids. You can't have that candy bar. Oh, come on. Oh, here's here's the book. I mean, TV, target, whatever. You can do it within our society. You still have I was I was going to agree with you there that with the marketing techniques that are used, it's based on an understanding of covenants. It really is. So when when I, I don't know somebody, I don't know you got your mic on or something. It's causing a lot of static. Would you all check that, please? But anyway, um, I don't think we have difficulty understanding the point Paul is making in verse 8. I, I don't think we struggle with that. We understand what he's saying, right? I mean, this is, okay, I got that, Paul. That's what you struggle with. I got it. 
And it's it, with children, with adults, and, and as Bill correctly said, modern advertising and marketing is really based on that premise as well. But then he goes on. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. What, what does he mean by that? Um, let's think about it as an infant. Paul is young. He didn't understand the depths of all this. He didn't understand the nature of all this. But as he reads the law, he reads, use his example here, covetousness, it stirs it up. It was once latent, now it's alive, and it brings not salvation, but sin and death. And that's really important for us to remember. Because when sin, when sin came alive, I died. Spurned by the law, the law was not designed to save. That was not its purpose. The law was designed for you and me, well, the Jews received it, but even Gentiles who convert to Judaism before Christ. It gives you God's method, God's way of walking with him. The sacrifices atone for your sin. The law and the, all the ceremonial stuff and civil stuff is how you walk with God based on him taking care of your sin problem by atoning for it. Atone means to cover. Atoning for it through the shed blood of lambs and the burnt offerings and the peace offerings and all that was a part of the ceremonial law. This is really important because the law, and this is the nature of the human condition, lays down the marker. We delight in violating the marker, which is an indication of the depths of our sin. The law revealed our problem. It did not propose the solution. Does that make sense? I mean, I've heard, this has been a long time since I've heard that, but I one time heard a pastor from the pulpit. There are two ways of salvation. The Old Testament, salvation by the law. The New Testament, salvation by Jesus. That's heresy, man. That is not true. That is not the way to study the scriptures. That's not what God revealed. After chapter 4 of this book, Romans showed us, God always justified by faith. Use the way we put it, God always is saved by faith. So the, the, all that's in the Old Testament, well, anyway, I don't need to review all that, but it, it, he's just giving another, it's an autobiographical statement, but it's something that we can really understand. The rules don't save us. It's grace through faith that saves us. That was true of Abraham, 2146 B.C., it's true of you and me, 2022 BC. All right, is it you with me? I'm really with Paul. He's laying this step by step, and what he's doing it in such a way that as he's autobiographically sharing things, is that boy, I agree with that, Paul. That's exactly the way I am. And we can't be uh, defeated by temptation because Christ, He was tempted in all ways, yet without sin. And so when we are tempted, it almost helps us when we resist it to build up an immunity toward yielding to that temptation. When you think based on I mean, your understanding of scriptures and people you've met for life, we will be tempted. We can't walk through this. Right. To, to, to be tempted, to, and tempt means to entice to do evil, is a given of life. 
It's how you respond to that temptation. And as you correctly said, Jesus gives us a good model of how to respond to it. You quote scripture. You rely on God's word. You rely on, excuse me, God's power uh, through the spirit that dwells us. The Old Testament saints, and one thinks of David or Samson or any other that come to your mind, they all experience temptation. And a lot of times it's recorded in scripture for us. And you have two diametrically opposed examples. You have David, for example, or Samson, for example. They yielded to temptation. And you have Joseph, who's tempted by Potiphar's wife. He did not yield to temptation. He fled rather than yield to it. So in the Old Testament, the Old Testament heroes had the capacity to not give in to temptation. It wasn't because of the law. It was because of their standing with God, based on their faith and trust in God. And it says in those chapters in Genesis 39 through 50 of Joseph, how many times, I, I used to know the number, I forget exactly, but how many times you read in the Lord was with Joseph, the Lord was with Joseph, the Lord was with Joseph. Because Joseph's faith and trust in God enabled, well, I, just, I shouldn't say enabled, was resulted in God, okay, you're faithful to me, I will be faithful to you, in terms of enabling and empowering you to deal with the things that you're going to face. Old Testament, they didn't have the Holy Spirit. No, not yeah. That's correct. That's, just, that's correct. How, how was that moral fiber strengthened? Well, yeah, I mean, it, the only the only answer to that question is, using an example here of Joseph, is he was a man of faith and trust in God. His dependence on God was real. His dependence on God was robust and vibrant, enabling him to withstand very, very serious temptations. Joseph is one of the few men in the Bible of which nothing negative is said of Joseph. There's no negative statement about Joseph in the Scripture. Verse 10, the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. Interesting. It says something again. The law gives guidance. The law is God's moral character revealed. Here's God speaking. Here's how I want you to live. I'm going to take care of your sin by continually atoning for sin through the shed blood of animals. That's the reason you do that. And it will, it will provide a way for you to walk with me. But the law does not transform people. God transforms people through their faith. The law doesn't transform. Because the law, as Paul is using autobiographically, sharing his, bearing his soul, being very transparent, the law didn't save me. As a matter of fact, it stimulated me to more sin, which then caused death. The, and this is, we have to keep remembering this. The law was not the path to salvation. The law was the path to walking with God in faith. Verse 11, for sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me. You could translate that, tricked me. 
and through it killed me. Sin breaks rules. The law lays down rules. So the law allowed sin to exercise itself. It tricked me. It deceived me. I thought it would promise me life. I tragically discovered because of my problem, it led to death. It became a pathway to death. Was that God's design? No. Because look at the next verse. The law is holy, and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. (laughs) And verse 12 is like the capstone. The problem isn't the law. The problem is me. But he, you just you see the, the, the way in which he's been building this case. The law, as God lays down his moral character, let's use the more dismissive word, God lays down the rules. Sin breaks the rules, and we delight in breaking rules. So sin tricked me. It, it deceived me. It deceived me, it tricked me, because I thought the law would bring me life. It didn't. If my perspective is keep the law and I'll have eternal life, that's a lie. Lie from the pits of hell. Because that is what the that is what ultimately Phariseeism became, but that is ultimately what every other world religion is, save biblical, genuine biblical Christianity. That's what Hinduism is, that's what Buddhism is, that's what Islam is, that's what uh, conservative Judaism is, that's what every other, every other worldview you can possibly imagine tells you the lie, do this, 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 and you'll go to heaven. Or whatever you call nirvana if you're a Buddhist, whatever. And that's it. Paul says that's from the pit because that is not the purpose of the law. The problem wasn't the law, again, verse 12. Holy, righteous, good, they're they're wondrous words for us. The problem is us. And the law, among many other things, will reveal the depths of our sin and rebellion against God. This is why Jimmy Carter got something. Because our society rewards people who satisfy the law by not going to jail, not, you know, whatever stealing but it's what's in their hearts and we have trouble that's right that's right and we always will that's right that's exactly right if our whole society is built on oh i can form law i'm better than you that's right look at me i haven't gone to jail and you you did or whatever and i'm therefore better than you morally better than you spiritually better than you and by the way i'm going to go to heaven you're not and, by the way, I get to tell you how to live your life. I mean, you, you summarize it exactly. And this is just a perfect illustration, taking what is happening in our society and, view, and, 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 and dovetailing what Paul is saying. You see, that, that's the tragedy of what happened. And, and Paul is addressing it because that's, he lived at that time. What Pharisaism had done to the Jewish person, they had told them, and this is the horror of Pharisees because it started off such a, it's such a good organization when it started in the intertestamental period. But by the time of Jesus, they had perverted what was good. They took what was good and perverted it. Keep the Sabbath and you'll be acceptable to God. 
Observe the kosher law. Hey, Jesus, we saw your disciples grabbing a couple of kernels of wheat. They violated the Sabbath. And, and Jesus says, uh, okay, what about David? He was running from Saul, and he went into the tavern and took a showbread and ate it. It isn't what you do that saves you. It's what God did for you that you accept by faith that saves you. You believe what God has said. Okay. There were about seven bunny troves I was thinking about. Yeah. Them, but yeah. I just thought I'd not go down any of them. <laughs> All right. Now, verse 13 through verse 25 really are some of the most important verses in the New Testament on the realities of sanctification. Remember, I told you earlier, chapter 6, 7, and 8 begin the discussion of the doctrine of, trans, of, of sanctification. 3, 21 through the end of chapter 5 are on the doctrine of justification, which is the theme of the book. But Paul now, he's, he's, he's helped us to understand, look, go, go through the argument so far, verses chapter 6 and 7 so far. Chapter 6, the first half, we're dead to, the, to sin. We died with sin. We died with Jesus, death, burn, resurrection of Jesus. Second, we have a new master. We were enslaved to the law, enslaved to sin, excuse me. Now we have a new master, Jesus. Thirdly, which we've just covered through verse 13 of chapter 7, we're dead to the law. Because the law actually dis was part of what sin used to deceive us. We, we bought a perverted view of the law. And what the law exposed is the depths of our sin and rebellion against God. Verse 13 begins now, and Paul becomes very transparent here in his own life. And I, as some, most expositors don't, but some expositors see this as a description of Paul before he came to Christ. I don't think it is. Most think it is after he came to Christ, what his walk with Christ was like. So he poses another question, which he does so frequently. Did that which is good, and that takes you back to the last word of verse 12, where he talks about the law being holy, righteous, and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? Well, again, made the noise, the strongest way you can say no. By no means, it was sin <laughs> producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Now that verse, it's a little cumbersome, but that verse summarizes what I've just been saying. The problem isn't the law, the problem's me, and the sin that's in me caused the law to be perverted and became actually an avenue that was used for me to sin even more. As he says, might become sinful beyond measure. Now he goes on, verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. Now, I want to, this isn't a bunny trail, but I, I, I want to explain something. The word in the middle of verse 14, flesh, is a very important word in this section, and it's a very important New Testament word. 
Itzrakatos in Greek. What, what does that mean? Does it mean that the skin and bones that are part of my body? No, that's not what it means. Can mean that's not what it means. Walking after the flesh, living in the, in the flesh, being of the flesh, I'm living independent of God. I'm leaning on my own understanding. I'm relying on my own strength. I'm drawing from my own resources. Can a Christian try to walk with God in the flesh? Sure. And if you make the decision, well, I'm going to... I'm a Christian. I came to faith in Jesus Christ, but now, Lord, thank you. I got it. I'll hand over from here. That's walking in flesh. As he's going to argue as he transitioned to chapter seven, uh, chapter eight, we are to walk by the Spirit. Because the flesh is the enemy of the Spirit. We are to walk in utter dependence on God, relying on his strength, his understanding, his resources. And so Paul is setting up the opposite ends of the spectrum. The law was spiritual. And I'm of the flesh, soul, understand. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. And so this, this routine of Paul and he summarizes for us there in verse 15 and verse uh, 15 is his character at 14 15 is characteristic of most maybe I shouldn't say of many believers I've been converted I've been saved I've been redeemed but my flesh still seeks to do evil there is now a struggle in my life that wasn't there before. Before I came to faith in Jesus Christ, I, I'm, I, this isn't, I don't mean this, I'm just using this as I said. I could steal and it didn't bother me. I could lie and it didn't bother me. I could curse and it didn't bother me. I mean, I, again, I'm using things right out of the wall as an illustration. You come to faith in Jesus Christ. You've experienced the justification. You're now righteous in God's eyes. And now you lie. That's going to bother you. Now you steal. That's going to bother you. Because you see, you come to faith in Christ, and you are positionally a new creature in Christ. But the, the language that Paul uses in his writings is, we have the old self. It's still there. We have the old nature. It's still there. And all the power and attractiveness and, and robust nature of the old self is still there. But I am new in Christ. And what I've got to do is my position, the indicative, must lead to the imperative. I now want to desire to obey the Lord and to walk with him. But it sets up a struggle. Because the flesh is there, where you rely on your own strength, your own understanding, your own, your own resources, and God says, what, what are you doing? Those resources were got you in trouble. 
Now I'm giving you new resources. I'm giving you the spirit. I'm giving you my word. I'm giving you the fellowship of the believers. The resources you need to kill, I'm going to use the words of John Owen, that great Puritan theologian of the 1600s, to kill the flesh. His words were mortify the flesh. Who uses mortify? <laughs> I don't remember anybody using mortify in the last 10 years of my life. But kill the flesh. And so Paul is setting this up. The reality, says Paul speaking. The reality of my life, Paul is writing, is I do not do what I want to do, but I do the very thing I hate. This is Paul speaking. This is a Nero. This is Paul speaking. Because sanctification is the process of being transformed into the image of Christ. But we have the old flesh and the new spirit. And Paul in, in uh, Galatians 5, says the flesh is warring against the spirit. That's the language he uses. And then he gives you all of the, the, the item. Here's the itemization of all the things that are associated with the flesh. Here's all the things that are associated with the spirit. So the struggle begins. And this is, we have to be very careful. And I, I've been guilty of this. When you're, when you're leading somebody to the Lord, don't, don't say, no, listen, come to Jesus and everything's going to be fine. Now, in one sense, that's true. Your sin will be forever dealt with. You'll be positionally a new creation. All of those wonders of the 33 things that happened to us when we trust Christ. But don't tell them or don't give them the impression that the struggle will end. The struggle just begins at one level. But now you have the power and resources of God to deal with that, to be, to be in the words of John in his first epistle, 1 John. We, we have the potential to be overcomers, victors, because of our position, overcomers. And so he, his, 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 his argument, Paul, what Paul's argument is, I want you to understand now. now one of your enemies that you, and you, and you come to faith in Christ is the flesh. One of your enemies. What are you going to do with that? Because the reality of the flesh is, I do not do what I want to do, but I don't do the very things I I do the very things I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it's good. So you see, his own behavior convinces him that the law is good. Because all the law has done is expose the depth of my rebellion and my flesh, when I live by the flesh, shows me again, the law really is good. The law has a correct analysis of my behavior. But now that I've come to faith in Christ, that struggle, as the illustration you used earlier in the chapter, was covetousness. Still there. But he goes on, verse 18. And, and by the way, as he, as he argues here, so now, verse 17, so now it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. This demonstrates to us once again a continual devastating power of sin in the believer's life. It's still there. Verse 19. <clears throat> Where am I here? 
For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Flesh, the sinful nature, is the problem, not his new identity. So there's like a, can, can I, I put it this way? There's like a mind war, a war that's going on in the mind. I know who I am in Christ. I know my new identity in Christ. And I know the moral law of God, that's clear. But I find I can't do what this says, what this declares. So he groans. It is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. The power of indwelling sin is real. The summary of that is one word. It's used here. It's going to be used again. It's in Galatians 5, a major chapter on that. One word that summarizes it is the flesh. What? The flesh. That summarizes Verse 21, so I find it to be the law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God, in my inner being, and I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death. Again, this is not a description autobiographically of Paul before he came to faith in Christ on the Damascus Road. This is a transparent autobiographical account of Paul after he came to faith. The struggle, the battle between the flesh and the spirit. It's real. Now, um, when you end chapter 7, it's almost hopeless. Uh, not reading verse 25 yet, but it's almost hopeless. <coughs> it's like he's groaning. <laughs> Wretched man that I am. <laughs> and, I, you know, I mean, I've, I've worked with men more than women, but over the years of my ministry, and I have known many, many, many men that can say exactly that. They're believers. They cannot seem to be able to break the power of sin in their lives. Let's use the words fully to power the flesh in the lives. And they seem defeated. And they can say, what a wretched man that I am. Who's going to deliver me from this? He's working to chapter 8. He's almost there. Because the answer to the battle between the flesh and the spirit is the power of the indwelling spirit. The key to sanctification is the Holy Spirit. He's working his, he's almost there. Now, let me stop because it's 1230. I'm not going to stop the class. I'll stop just a minute. I want to make sure you're, you're, you're with me and more particularly you're with Paul. That you really what Paul has been doing here in chapter 6 and 7. We're dead 
We're died with Jesus. We're dead to sin positionally. We have a new master, Jesus. We're dead to the law, but we still struggle. Flesh versus the spirit. And that struggle is real. If you, uh, and I, it, it is still in my life, it's real. But back when I came to the Lord, those next five years were extremely difficult years for me as I was trying to get rid of the old junk of my past life and substitute it with the new realities of my life with Christ. And that's not easy. I've worked with young men who are addicted to pornography, and that to break that addiction and get victory over that, it doesn't happen normally. It doesn't happen in one day. Because that struggle is real. And, you know, uh, I mean, you can substitute anything for what I use as an illustration, pornography, but anything that's sent. And so Paul is just, that's why I love this with Paul. If Paul struggled, we should not feel, diff- we should not feel bad. Or should, I'm a second-class Christian because I'm still struggling with this stuff. Uh, let's look at Paul. Paul sort of this, and he's willing to be transparent and admit it. We are admonished to forsake not the assembling of ourselves together where we can be with other Christians. That's right. And encourage one another so that there's hope. I mean, like you talk about, and we've had classes at our church with addiction, uh, sexual addiction, and trying to deal with that. Uh, But the fellowship of the church helps to encourage the believer. Don't you think? Absolutely. Essential, that's why the word is yeah, it, it is essential uh, to be an overcomer, and you're using that language in First John. To be an overcomer is to, to be a part of, of, of the body of Christ and the mutual encouragement as well as the mutual admonishment. I'm using old words there, but the mutual admonishment that comes in the body of Christ. This is not an original statement with me. I'm sure you've heard it many times. But there are no lone rangers in the church. We need each other. And we, I, I've had most of my, since uh, 72, I, I've voluntarily been in accountability relationships with other men where they have the freedom. I have, a, I even, I think I distributed them one time in this class, but I have a list of questions that I am willing to have people ask me in, in the accountability situation. And I think that's really important because we, we need that accountability because of this struggle. Paul is telling us in, in a very transparent way what is the reality of anyone that's serious about walking with the Lord. It is a struggle. But I, can, I think everyone would agree with it. I know one thing, this struggle can be intense, but I do not want to go back to before 1972 in my life. I don't want to go back to that. And so this is what Paul is saying, and this is why chapter 8, we only have 10 minutes, but chapter 8, we're going to start it, and then in two weeks, we'll really dig into it. Remember, we don't meet next week. Look at verse 25. Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. And I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. I think that's lovely. My mind. 
I know Christ. I know his moral law. I want to serve him. But in my flesh, in my flesh, I still serve sin. That's the nature of the struggle. The flesh versus the spirit. All right. Now, this, this, this introduction to chapter uh, 8 is probably one of the most important anchors for you and me every single day of our life. There is, therefore, now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Let's work our way back. In Christ Jesus, used 242 times in the New Testament. The sphere of blessing. The key, that little sphere of my identity. This is who I am. What's, what's in that being in Christ Jesus? Redemption, justification, propitiation. Lord, all of those wonderful words are in that. That's who I am. I'm in Christ Jesus. And because I'm in Christ Jesus, the word is condemnation. The word condemnation is used 83 times in the book of Romans. It's the word of judgment. There's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. What does it mean? Because Jesus, Jesus took the penalty for it. Remember when we studied a couple chapters ago the word propitiation? The wrath of God was satisfied. Jesus was judged, so God does not have to judge me. Jesus died and was separated. I will not experience that separation from God. There's no condemnation. Look at the word now. That's very important. That's a very important word. Because the word now is a temporal word. It's a word of time. The new era has begun. The new covenant has been inaugurated. There's therefore now. No condemnation to those in Christ Jesus. So he's going from this very transparent, intensive description of the struggle between the flesh and the spirit. But that struggle, that struggle you have does not mean you're facing condemnation, eternal separation and judgment from God. No. Now in the new covenant era, there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, he's not going to deal with it here, but how do you get in that sphere of blessing? By putting your faith and trust in Christ. So it's just, it's a, it's a marvelous reminder as he begins now to transition from the seeming despair and almost hopelessness of those last verses of chapter 7 to remind us who we are now. It's who we are in Christ. Don't forget that. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. That is also true. So he uses the, the law of the Spirit. That's the language of the new covenant. Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36. This is the language of the new covenant. The law of the Spirit has set you free. Because to be in Christ Jesus is to be free. Free of what? From the law of sin and death. That's our position. Verse 1 and verse 2, just reminding us of our position. No condemnation.
by sending, uh, verse 34, God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. The law is good, perfect, righteous, Romans 7, 12. But the law is weakened by the flesh. It cannot, it cannot provide eternal life. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh for sin, he can then sin in the flesh. Jesus, and this is speaking of Christ, he experienced the judgment, the condemnation in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Let's think about what he's just saying here. This is a marvelous truth. What Jesus Christ accomplished in his death, burial, and resurrection, condemnation of sin, the penalty of death has been paid. The Holy Spirit now applies to his indwelling ministry in our lives. What Christ won for us positionally, I'm in Christ Jesus. The Holy Spirit works in us practically. That's the difference between justification and sanctification. Let's get real theological here. Justification is the result of Jesus Christ's finished work. Sanctification is the result of the Holy Spirit's perfect work in our lives. The era of the new covenant, the sign is the new covenant. Uh, the sign of the new covenant is the Holy Spirit, who's the power and enabling grace of God in the new covenant. What Jesus accomplished in Zephyr and Resurrection, Positionally for us, this is what it means to be in Christ Jesus. The Holy Spirit applies practically in our lives. God brings it all together. The law exposed the depths of our rebellion. It didn't save us. Jesus saved us and created this marvelous description of who I am. There is therefore now no condemnation to those in Christ Jesus. The Spirit has set us free in Christ Jesus from sin and death. And the Holy Spirit begins to apply practically what Jesus accomplished for us positionally. Justification is accomplished by the finished work of Christ. Sanctification is accomplished by the power of the indwelling Spirit. We need both. Because the victory over the flesh is the Spirit's work. We walk by the Spirit, not by the flesh. That's the argument of Ephesians 4, 5, and 6. Galatians 5 and 6. We walk by the Spirit, not by the flesh. Got it? That's good. I'm so, I'm not done yet. You have three more minutes. You're going to get them, but I just want to make sure you're, you're, you're with me. One more verse, verse four. You know that already, the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Walk not according to flesh, but according to the spirit. There's that wonderful language, walk, peripateo. The word walk there is daily, normal walk of life. We don't walk by the flesh. We walk by the Spirit. And as we do that, the perfect, righteous law is fulfilled. We stop stealing. We stop lying. All, I mean, all the things that the law exposed 
through the power of the Holy Spirit in the process of sanctification, we find ourselves actually fulfilling what God wants us to do. What could not be accomplished by the power of the flesh is accomplished by the power of the Spirit. Because you walk by the Spirit. I think I am going to stop there because verse 5, six and all the way down through 8 is just a whole unit that I I, I don't want to split into parts. So we'll wait for two weeks and I'll I'll probably summarize the first four verses of chapter 8, but really dig into 5. Five through eight, it's it's a fabulous section on helping us to understand the nature of the spirit, the nature of the flesh, and what the spirit does to counteract that. It's quite wonderful. So, okay, all right. Uh, this is really practical stuff that I hope it has sunk in. That a lot of it is it's the key. It really is. It meant a lot to me, uh, Pastor, and uh, I look forward to hearing your summary of the first few verses and yes further explanation of it well thank you woody it's this is really this is as i said earlier and, and i think i repeat a couple times these chapters we're in right now are some of the most important chapters in the new testament and explaining things that are peppered throughout the new testament coherently explaining it and I, I really mean this with all my heart. If Christians really took this seriously, we wouldn't have to pray for revival. We would see revival. We really would. Father, thank you for the Apostle Paul's transparency. I know he was writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but what he says there at the end of chapter 7 always resonates with me. And I'm pretty sure if everybody's intellectually honest, it resonates with them because that describes us so so poignantly. So often we do what we don't want to do, and we don't seem to be able to do what we should be doing, and what we want to do. And the answer of that is that that's because of the flesh, trying to live our lives on our own strength and, and independently of you instead of relying on you. And that's why the Holy Spirit, where Jesus purchased our redemption and allows the Father to justify us, declare us righteous. It's the result of his work. It's the work of the Holy Spirit that is the key to the process of sanctification. As Paul says here, and he's going to elaborate on it next week or in two weeks, we are instructed to walk in the power of the Spirit, not in the power of the flesh. That's a discipline we have to learn. That's an experience we have to see the results of. And we have to, in our own decision-making, our own will, I want to do this, Lord, help me. I can't do what I, I, I don't want to do in this anymore. Help me. And in dependence on you, I'm going to rely on yours. They're the kinds of things that Paul is getting at, where we kill the flesh and enliven the spirit as an act of our will. And you, your power is what accomplishes it. It all goes to glorifying you, what you're doing. Help these men to understand what the process of sanctification is all about and the the absolutely central role that the Holy Spirit plays. We yield to him each morning. We are dependent on his power each hour, and we give you the glory for what you are doing in transforming us into the image of your son, Jesus. Be with these men, and I look forward to regathering together in two weeks. Commit each one to you in Jesus' name.